Please be seated, please grab a Bible. Rona is going to come up in a moment and read to us from John Butcher from 2nd Corinthians chapter 4. Bibles open to 
the second uh, letter to the Corinthians, which, as we've said in the past, this is actually the fourth. There are two that are lost to us, um, and uh, the and this is a very pastoral letter of Paul's in the midst of trouble, where he's got super apostles who are questioning his authority. Judaizer apostles who are questioning his integrity and his teaching. And so Paul uh, writes this very pastoral letter after sending Timothy to him and things like that. Now I'm holding four slides, so I'll just ask you to press that under. That's great. So get, keep on the first one just now, uh, two Corinthians. Don't put that on yet. That's the one. Thank you. When I've said in the past that um, there have been a number of young people that when I was a good pastor came to me and they said Dave I'm considering studying theology to go into the ministry and I've always done my best to say don't uh, and that was because my own pastor unbeknown to me did that at the time he really challenged this idea of studying theology and um, because some people may think it's a bit of a, an easy ride going and working in the church don't know what else they want to do they love Jesus so let's go and work in the church and it's far from that. But I've also been privileged to be with some uh, younger ministers uh, who have been ordained and who are stepping into the pastorate for the first time. And there's a lot of excitement about that. There really is uh, the anticipation that they're going to journey with this, this flock. They're going to be the under-shepherd with this flock. And, the, you know, they have just got, the, the world is their oyster. They're full of energy, most of them, because the vast majority um, are in their 20s and their 30s. Um, but you also know that within a few months you're going to get a phone call, maybe even not a few months, and maybe only weeks when you're getting phone calls. I can remember um, one email, it was back in the day, it must have been a letter actually, it was, it was before email took over our lives, and way before mobile phones took over our lives. My mentor, Jim Taylor, who had been the pastor at Stirling Baptist for 25 plus years, I've still got a letter from him where I must have complained about a group of people here or in the vicinity. Actually, it wasn't anyone in the church. That's the truth. It was people out with the church. And I said, such and such hates me. I can tell that they hate me. And his response back was, well, if they hate you, you're doing something good. And uh, in other words, your ministry is based on the, the number of enemies that you have. If you've got a lot of enemies and you're remaining faithful to God's work, you're doing well. Join the queue of those who went before you, who have passed the well or who have led well. Paul lived a full life. We know that. We see so much of his life in his letters. Incredible amount of our um, Holy Bible is Paul's letters to churches that he birthed and pastored. But we can also see that it was a, a tough life. And the theme throughout this series of 2 Corinthians is the undercurrent of we are in a battle. This is not a sleepy retirement place. There is a battle for the soul of the church. There's a battle for the souls of people out there. And we know scriptures that says a battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. And so that's the underbelly and undercurrent of everything that we're looking at in 2 Corinthians. Even if I do not mention spiritual warfare, it's always in the back of my mind. So when I read of Paul having an incredibly tough life, it was tough for a reason. He came to faith in the road to Damascus and he met Jesus and from there got his um, commission to be an apostle to the Gentiles 
And then God at the same time spoke to Ananias, who was a God-fearing believer, uh, and he said this to, um, to Ananias, who objected to going to, to pray for Paul, who was at that time called Saul, because he was, a, he was a persecutor of the church. And this is what God said to Ananias. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right at the beginning, first prophetic words concerning Paul is that he must suffer as an apostle to the Gentiles, as a minister of the word for God's sake. And he did suffer assassination attempts. He had to be lured out of, I think it was Damascus, did he have to be lured out of in a basket? But whether it was a small town or a large city, frequently he came across stonings, frequently he came across groups within uh, the Jewish church and also within a secular world who were just against what he had to say. Why did he experience jail long term, short term? Simply because of this. I will show him how much he must suffer, Acts chapter 9, for my name. And he testified to this. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes this. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. All because of the ministry he received from the Lord. So you understand when a young, excited person comes to me and says, Dave, I really feel God's call in my life to go into the ministry. And I say, hold on, have you thought about this? And you're really testing that. This is not an easy gig. And maybe they're not looking for an easy gig. Maybe they're looking to be faithful to what God has put in their heart. heart. Because being faithful to Jesus is hard. For us, as a church who's known as being a happy clappy, or a church, I've seen ahead some Things, people who really believe what they preach, but then I've heard some negative things. They are too good for us. It's incredible what people think about us. They might not have never been in here. But even all of that aside, we are in a culture who is increasingly opposed to what has been handed over to us from the saints. Orthodox Christianity. Christ-centered, gospel-centered faith. So we will come across our culture, across our choices, we will cut across their uh, values, we will cut across their morality or immorality because we're being faithful to the Jesus way. And so here I'm going to look at this, how to endure, endure when the, the, there's so much that we have, when the winds are blowing against us when people are ostracizing us, when we feel like we're sticking out with a sore thumb, how do we endure? That's what I'm going to look at in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now let's go for that first slide. That was just the introduction. Okay, better hurry up, Rachel said that something. Before we look at how to endure, um, what weapons, what, what things that Paul brings out here, Paul does include a whole bunch of encouragements for us and that first one there is that God is with us. We have not made this up. 
and our right minds make up the core of this book. That everyone in the world will burn in the blackest hell unless they repent of their sins and turn to the one individual who has died in their place. I know that's off the top of my head, summary of the gospel. But who's going to make that up if you're going to try and get followers? We wouldn't. If we were to make something up, it would be something that would be softer, more digestible, and it would be something much more religious outwardly, but certainly not inwardly. That's what our culture would make up and actually is increasingly making up. I'm okay, you're okay, do your best in everything. Jesus gets us. I don't think anyone in the right mind would make up what we preach. If someone was to corner us and say, so come on, tell us if you only had 30 seconds before I kill you, what would you share with me? And you would say, for God so loved the world, he gave us one and only son. Come on, what's the next part? That whoever should, shall not. And we would say it in some form like that. If that was, we knew what was coming and we had to be significant and, and, and stand firm for Jesus in that point. This wasn't handed down to us, tried and tested by the Spirit. Then we would make up something a lot better. We might say, you're okay. You know, I'm actually okay. Whatever you say. You get me? You get me? That's what we would say. Paul says in verse 1, we have received this ministry. In other words, it's a gift from God. We have received this ministry. And at the beginning of the letter to the church at Galatia, Galatia in, in the book of Galatians, he says this, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. God has gifted us we are to make an appeal as if we are an ambassadors of Christ. We do not speak on our own. Neither are we on our own speaking because God is with us. Neither will I leave you nor forsake you. So he gives us a gift. We are planning, go and share. And it's an encouragement to know that you're not on your own. Yet you can have people beside you, siblings, small group, and kindred spirits, people who mentor you, that's all great. But God just doesn't give us he equips us, he calls us, he equips us, he anoints us. God is with us to bring about the Father's will in Christ according to his spirit in our lives, in his church, the bride of Christ. So no matter what we come across, we need to always remember this. And Paul says it right at the beginning, we've received this from God as a gift. It doesn't abandon us. I think that's encouraging in these days. And the second thing is that God is at work. Did you know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in clay pots? Yes, they did. 1946, 47, something like that. Uh, Bedouin teenagers who were looking after their goats bored stupid, rolled out, and were throwing stones into caves, and then they heard a and it was a, a, a pot smashing. 
and they went up and they found an incredible amount of parchments in pots. And so over time, I think they found something like 800 or 900 precious scriptures, not only just scriptures, there was everyday material of, of accounting logs and things like that, uh, scrolls of Isaiah and all sorts. I think the only parchment of scripture that's never been found yet is the book of Esther, which is interesting. Um, but um, clay pots, um, very ordinary, but inside precious. Now I've had people say to me once or twice here, David, you're not going to leave. You're not going to leave. And although that's nice, and I know they want me to do a funeral and all that sort of jazz, um, it's not right. It really is not right. Verse 7, Paul says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this message, the gospel that changes lives in jars of clay. That's what it is. The messenger is not impressive, just a clay pot. The message is impressive. Why? The message is impressive because it changes life. I testify to that. And many of us in here will testify to that as well. The message has captured our heart, has melted our heart. It is impressive. There is no other message like it. The messenger can't change lives, can be charismatic, can be pastoral, but it's the message that changes lives. And the message does need the messenger to speak, we know that, but when a life has changed, or if you go into I don't know, let's choose. If you go into a escape route across the road and you get yourself a chai latte, semi, semi skin, this and that, etc., and you take a sip, you really don't know what a fantastic look. You say, that's brilliant. So it's what's in there. So God doesn't work. I can see it with my eyes in front of me. It's encouraging. Especially when we hear of so much negativity, we can look around the bounds and say, actually God is working here, and this is exciting. Third thing just to um, encourage us is that God is preparing eternity. Ministry can begin. We have this in verses 8 and 9. We are hard pressed on every side but not crushed. Perplexed but not dating, but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. Pressure, they're hard pressed, like a quarterback, like an American football player who receives the ball and at that point he's got a whole bunch of people who are rushing towards him. We are eh, under pressure and from every side. Perplexed, maybe like a secretary who is given a whole stack of, of things in her entry and she just doesn't even know where to start. Um, persecuted, like someone who is hunted. Knows that there's people hiding, knows that people is after them, and, and so in that point of being chased and thrown down or struck down, much like a boxer, but not crushed, not despair, not abandoned, not destroyed. And in verse 17, he, he calls this reality our light and momentary troubles that are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweigh them all. Think of it. Think of it a little bit like man flu. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> Am I right, gents? Yeah. Yes. You just don't understand. 
Nein, ich habe ich God takes a mountain and makes a molehill out of it in our circumstances. How does he do that? Well, the places of honesty, momentary suffering, eternal glory. We know it's happening. We all, some of us are grieving, some of us are anxious, some of us are perplexed, heart-pressed in all sorts of ways. God is with us. God is at work in us and he's preparing a place for us. If it were not so, I would have told you, he says. And so if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me so you may also be where I am. The eternal glory outweighs our present circumstances. So God is preparing eternity for us. Life is not always going to be a small. So I think these are some encouragers for us as we just look very briefly at some um, things that um, are like almost like weapons. But my first thing I want to say is this briefly is what does it mean to live a victorious life, a victorious uh, Christian life and I'm all for the words of victory, as long as it's the same way in which Paul describes the words of victory. Sometimes when I hear people talk about victory, it sounds like they want some sort of experience that will deliver them from all the trials and struggles. And you can hear it in their prayers. They want the, uh, to be lifted to a higher plane, to a higher life, that will preserve them from all trouble. And I don't think... That is a biblical way of looking at it, of walking with Jesus in the dust of our lapper. So I don't go for victory like that. Because some Christians want their life to almost be like, and maybe some of you have not went on these, but I did as a kid, you know, the haunted house rights where you get in the wee cart and you go round and ghouls jump out at you and they're skeletons. And you just enter into all of that fun. But you know it's not going to touch you. You know it's, it's just going to be over in a second and you're going to come out um, and be faced with the people who are going to take your car as they go around this little experience. All too often when we talk about victory, we talk about suffering. Too many Christians think like that and that is not the reality. Paul suffered greatly and he did so because of the ministry that he was given. So what does God provide for us to endure? Andrew, last one. Here we go. Just very briefly, a righteous life. I liked how the message put it, refuse to wear masks and play games. This is um, from verse 2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. So we refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't manoeuvre and manipulate behind the scenes. Paul, in this verse right at the beginning, when he says, we do... Um, um, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. I think he's got in mind the Judaizers, the super, super apostles, but he's also considering himself, he's weighing himself up against them. So they must have been secret and shameful ways. Maybe they were outwardly religious, not practicing what they preached. And Paul says right away, as he justified his ministry, this is who I am. I have nothing to hide either than my, my personal life, or how I am preaching the, the word. Everything is open and honest. There is no deceit, there is no distortion. And that is powerful in so many ways. I was thinking this morning of an example of this. And, and I came, and I was thinking of what they call the seven sons of Sceva. 
You know that story in Acts chapter 19 where these uh, uh, people had been casting out, I think they were sons of the high priest or a priestly order anyway, and they had been doing miraculous things and they were watching, was it Paul or was it Peter? Paul that had been, maybe Barnabas, I don't know, and seeing how they were casting out evil spirits in the name of Jesus. And so they decided to use that sort of technique as like voodoo or whatever it were. And went up to this guy who had a, a demon in him and he says, in the name of Jesus, these seven sons, we command you to come out in the name of Jesus. And the reply from that guy and from that demon was this, Jesus I know and I have heard of Paul, but who are you? They had no power, no authority. They were outwardly doing it was right, but inwardly they were rotten. Paul says, a righteous life is powerful. Being honest and open to the Lord, allowing him to work in us, even that need not be my casting out demons every two minutes, but that is a presence among others who are watching us is a powerful thing. A righteous life by the grace of God as it is in heaven. Imagine what that would be like for you. As it is for many of us. An unadulterated proclamation of the gospel. He says, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of truth. I like again how Phillips put this in, it's J.P. Phillips. We use no hocus pocus, no clever tricks, no dishonest manipulation of the word of God. How do you know if someone is speaking the truth, especially if they invoke the name of God? It's been on my mind as I was talking this week in Glasgow with one of my young people from Stirling Baptist. And, and she was on the ball, she was fantastic. But it really made me think of this. Sometimes when someone's quoting the Bible, they misquote it or they misquote the intent of the passage. So therefore, we need that tool of hermeneutics. Remember, I, I introduced that last week. The only possible hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation which believes in it, which was Leslie Newbigin who, who said that. In other words, if you want to see the power of the gospel, you want to see it physically, and you want, then you look at a church that takes God's word at face value, that's open to the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit. There you will see the gospel. That is the only hermeneutic, that's the only tool of interpreting God as a work there. So hermeneutics, you interpret every text in its context. If you isolate a scripture and you don't take into consideration all the things that are around about it, you form a pretext. You can say, or you can make it say anything you want to because you take a text out of its context and you can make the Bible do the craziest things possible. In scripture it says this, there is no God. In Psalm 14 it says there is no God. Right away you should be saying, ah come on, it's not all it says. What else does it say? Because you're saying, what's the context? Where is he going with this? Do I trust him? What interpretation is he using? But then if you look up Psalm 14 verse 1, in context it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So whenever you hear a Bible uh, quoted, you must ask yourself, 
What's I learned about that text? Or go and look up. What's the context? And of course, we interpret by looking at the grammar, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Arabic. And we look at the verbs, the are verbs, and pre-verb, all that sort of stuff that I don't have a clue about. Um, but you understand what's just happened beforehand. You know, I've touched upon it here. It says, therefore. So you may think, well, therefore, what, what happened before? There's a continuation of the theme. An adulterated um, proclamation of the gospel means that you and I need to know this. You and I need to live this. We need to feed on it and allow it to read us. We need to eat it, digest it, and at the right time it will ruminate, it will come back, and it will be alive to us. Because people contradict the Bible, but the Bible does not contradict itself. And finally, in this whole task of being God's people in that culture that's really against it, Paul says we must have a servant spirit. That's easier said than done. In verse 5 he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. They have questioned this man, asked for all sorts of records of, records of recommendation, not done what he said, listened to other more um, glamorous, uh, uh, better spoken super apostles. He easily could be hurt, and in fact I'm pretty sure he was very distressed. We know he was distressed. He speaks about this being distressed. And yet he says here to these people who have literally spat in his face, but I'm your servant. That is my calling. To be your father in the faith, but to serve you in the faith as well. My understanding of the ministry has changed. This is not my ministry. When I was coming to put Lord and still and still in Baptist, a woman came up to me and she said something like this. So David, what's your vision for Pitlockery Baptist Church? And right away I just, oh, and I went, um, I've not got a vision. <coughs> Which really was not the answer that she was looking for. I said, and I said something like this, I've not lived there for two minutes. I don't know what they feel. All I know is that God has called me to that area. I'm to be a missionary in that area. But I ain't got a vision. Because this is not my ministry. God has called me into this ministry. What he is doing is his ministry. And although I am a leader, I'm a servant leader as well. Sometimes I need to lead. And by leading, I need to get shot down. And it's happened many times. That is the lonely place of leadership. But it cannot be as a dictator. It must be as a servant. And that's a hard balance to get at time, but I believe it is the only balance we've been saved to serve. And my question to all of you in this church family is, how are you serving? What has God called you to? I know many of you know this, comes just like that, but some of you are like, I don't know. Some of you are here because you've been like a ship in the high seas and you're exhausted. You're battered and bruised and you need to come into the port for healing to be restored. But that is not where a ship should stay. A ship then needs to go to the high seas because it's where it belongs. Sometimes churches need to be places where we get healed, but it's not to be the place where you're to just stop. I believe that the local church is important. 
And so therefore I say to you, if you are ready to serve, when are you ready to serve? This, although we sit in seats and it's, you know, like, a, it's like an entertainment business, it isn't like that. It shouldn't be like that. So what has God called you to do? And maybe we need to run a short course next week on discovering your spiritual gifts or even just discovering gifts. I would really like to hear from you if you think that would be the case. So in finishing and closing, I want to read your story. And it goes like this. A pastor of a small church in rural Scotland, he had been forced by his elders um, to give up the ministry. They claimed that they saw no fruit from his ministry. In the village in which this pastor served was a difficult place. People's hearts were cold and hostile to the truth. And during the time the pastor served, there had been no conversions and there had been no baptisms. But in his testimony, he recalled one positive response to his preaching. Just one. True story. When the offering plate was passed, one ordinary Sunday, when all of this was going on, when he was at the lowest of his home, a young boy placed the offering plate on the floor and stepped into it. And when asked to explain, he replied that he'd been deeply touched by the minister's life, by the minister's whole life, and while he had no money to give, he was willing to give himself wholly to God. The boy who stepped into that plate was a man called Bobby Moffat, who in 1817 became a pioneer missionary to South Africa. He was greatly used to, to, by God to touch many lives, and it all started in that one little rural church that was at war, where people were wanting to be entertained and were looking at the pastor and saying, you're not good anymore, we want a better shepherd. And this young boy was keeping up there, saying, Everyone's watching in our, in our societies are watching us. God is with us, he's at work. He's working out eternal purposes in us. He calls us to a righteous life, people who know the word, who serve us. Maybe so. Amen.